out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the author, writer, Wesley Doyle, who's recently written a book titled Conform to Deform, The Weird and Wonderful World of Some Bazaar, a record label from the 80s that features the incredible Steve-O. So uh, we're going to find out more about Steve-O, the label, the bands, and much, much more. Anyway, this book has just come out on Jawbone Press, and it's absolutely fantastic. So it's going to feature lots of interesting artists, performers from the 80s, 90s. Anyway, this is Wesley in conversation. So after several minutes of casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that really was a background to the label and Steve-O. Anyway, Wesley, it's over to you. Yeah, so um, Some Bazaar, I guess, was the uh, brainchild of a guy called Steve O'Pierce, who was uh, a teenager from Dagenham in um, in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, he was a DJ and um, he would go out um, with DJ equipment that his mum had bought him uh, and play the most obscure and difficult electronic and uh, left field music possible um to audiences who really didn't want to hear that kind of music so he kind of he, he's kind of set his stall out quite early on um with this idea that he was bringing people music that they wouldn't have heard before and that that ethos kind of extended through to he he was offered a a chart in sounds the weekly music paper uh, called the futurist chart and every week he would list the songs that he was playing and through that, people would start to send him demos so that he could hear them and put them in his chart. And, you know, after a very short period of time, you know, sort of six or seven months, he soon found himself with a box full of demo tapes. And he decided that the best thing to do would be to start putting on gigs with these bands. Uh, and that led to uh, putting together a compilation album. Now, um, Initially, the idea was to try and get established bands to be on the compilation album. So bands like Cabaret Voltaire and Throbbing Gristle and Clock DVA, um, but none of them were interested. So the album ended up being a compilation of new bands, like bands who didn't have um, a record contract. Um, and those bands included Depeche Mode, Soft Cell, uh, The The, B-Movie and Blamange, as well as a, a host of others. So, um, yeah, he basically... A&R'd uh, the careers of, you know, five or six of the biggest bands in the 80s and, uh, yeah, had them all on this compilation album before they had record contracts, before anybody had really heard of them. Yes, that's interesting. Well, just stopping on that point, because it's kind of, you know, it's kind of easy to think, you know, the early 80s is probably quite a groovy and, and nice period. But frankly, Mr. Mm. Shankly, it was, you know, not that great. Um, you know, like 79, you know, Thatcher gets in after, you know, a decade of political sort of swinging, you know, brand number 10, which is kind of similar to now, but with the same party, <laughs> unlike then. But then, you know, 79, and then we, you know, we have the, you know, the Falkland War, we have the miners you know, strikes, we have, you know, Green and Common. But also the interesting thing with Stephen, Steve-O, is that his family are not really the, they're not sort of very wokey liberal left, are they? Because he's, mm, no, he's, he's got a brother who's a member of the far right as well, hasn't mm. he, at this stage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. His, his, his brother was, um, like, very much involved with the National Front. Um, yes. You know, like, uh, coming from Dagenham as they did, I think, unfortunately, at that time. 
um, racial tolerance wasn't uh, quite what it should have been. Um, and yeah, and I think, you know, Steve-O, while he never denied that his brother was involved in that, he sort of set himself apart from it and sort of said, you know, well, that's what my brother does and this is this is what, what I do. And I think it's, um, yeah, he kind of uh, went out of his way to, I wouldn't say antagonise his, his brother um, because, you know, he, he was living in the same house with him, but I think obviously to make sure that his his brother and and the, and the people he associated with knew that he wasn't involved or interested in in that side of politics, um, and I think what what that kind of gave him was this kind of fearlessness that you know he was going to plow his own path. You know, didn't matter what anybody around him was doing, what other people thought, he was definitely going to plow his own furrow and uh, you know stick to what he believed in, whether that you know. Uh, annoyed people around him or not i think he took that with him into his business dealings if you speak to anyone who dealt with him yes and this was also a time when there was a lot of um, well the beginning of 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 a lot of independent labels up to then Mm. there hadn't been an awful lot so the landscape again this was pre-creation records for it oh no 4ad had just about started hadn't it actually yeah for the first first um singles from 4ad uh came out in uh 1980 but the, the label was called axis uh, at that point um, and uh, yeah they released four singles I think it was uh, Bauhaus, um, Bar Set, I can't remember the other two off the top of my head. Actually the first uh, thing the first thing they released was the Rima Rima record. Oh was that the first thing really? Oh okay okay yes. so yeah that, that, I that know must have that come that out. I only saw the film <laughs> it was like yeah so yeah so that, that, that must have come out in 79 then I guess would it? Yeah the, it was an EP and then after that but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, let's let's not worry about Rima Rima too much, though they had. Um, <laughs> no, they are. They're amazing. But um, yes, but that was kind of, you know, there wasn't such a thing as the kind of the great indie world that we sort of realised mm. about sort of 80, 83 onwards. Suddenly the indie charts was quite something. So, yeah, you know, some bizarre. I mean, yeah, I, I, Steve, I guess the, I Steve guess the thing was quite out, new, wasn't he? Yeah, I guess the thing to point out about Steve was he wasn't really interested in being an indie label. I think... Um, Obviously, like a, a good comparison with Sun Bazaar would be Mute and like Daniel Miller's label. Um, but Daniel wanted to keep it independent. He didn't want anything to do with major record labels. He wanted to keep it small. And that was kind of by necessity because he was running it himself. But Steve-O really wanted to get in bed with major record labels and get this strange music that he liked out to as many people as possible. So the first Sun Bazaar album, the, the compilation, that was licensed to phonogram. So that was essentially a, a phonogram album. So it wasn't really an indie label. Like some bizarre did go on to to release stuff independently when people um sort of had enough of Steve O sort of bringing them these really extreme bands. Uh, he put them out himself. But um initially, uh yeah, that album, uh, the Soft Cell stuff and uh, B movies first singles, they all came out on major labels. Yes. So look. Getting a you know starting a record label was quite a tricky process. So how did he mm. navigate that? I mean, was he one of those kind of maverick characters that we sort of get to hear about who just had that brilliant kind of flash of uh, inspiration? Well, one one thing I found out when I was putting the book together, which I I didn't know, and you know I'm a big big fan of, of the label, was that um, he was working with the guys at Dead Good Records from Lincoln, so Martin Patton and Andy Stevenson, who ran a small label. Um, up near Nottingham and uh, they already had B-Movie uh, they'd released a couple of singles by B-Movie and uh, yeah they, they Steve-O called them up one day and said you know um, 
because he was familiar with B-Movie, he said, oh, I want to start a label. Can you help me out? And so he went up to Lincoln and um, they sat down and decided to start a label. And, and apparently, according to Martin Patton, that afternoon they sort of rummaged through a box of cassettes and found cassettes from Depeche Mode, Blumange, and uh, Soft Cell. And that was that was kind of the beginning the beginning of the label. But yeah, he, he did have help with, um, with, with these guys who had an established label up in Nottingham. Yes. And there's this kind of this interest in Leeds connection as well with soft sales. So how does he sort of find um, the, you know, Mark and David at this stage? I think uh, they sent him a copy of the Mutant Moments EP, which was their self-pressed uh, first sort of single um, that came out in 79. Um yeah, I think they they just sent it to him and he put it in the Futurist chart. And so they sent him a cassette of more demos. And then he came up to see them. They were living in uh, like student digs up in uh, a sort of a ropey part of Leeds. And he went up and visited them and um, just basically said, you know, I want to manage you. And they didn't have anything else going on. So uh, so they said, yeah, fine. So, yeah, I think um, it was as simple as him hearing their music and thinking, you know, having the foresight to see that he wanted to work with them. I mean, interestingly enough, uh, Daniel Miller told me that he he was already familiar with Soft Cell because uh, Frank Tovey, who performed under the name Fad Gadget, uh, went to uh, Leeds Polytechnic with Mark Armand, and he'd already told Daniel Miller about Soft Cell, but he didn't really feel that he could work with them at that time. So, yeah, Steve-O kind of picked it up. Yes, and, and Leeds at that stage was quite an interesting place because they'd had this amazing art school hadn't they from sort of the mid 70s mm. for a, someone just brought the book out last year and you know <clears> it was yes, like yeah. this kind of interesting kind of you know five six years of sort of these very sort of interest you know like quite avant-garde lecturers and it had attracted quite an interesting bunch of people who you know obviously like people like that was it the Mekons the three John Mekons, yeah gang of four the gang of four uh, people and um yeah yes and obviously Leeds has also got was very famous for their their goth bands as well at this yeah. stage so and, oh yeah and, Sisters of Mercy and March Violets and all those bands came from Leeds yeah yes and then was it the Dance Society was that from Leeds or were they slightly yeah, they were from Bradford I think so yeah the Yorkshire Yorkshire band but yeah yeah but, um, yeah I mean that was um, I mean the the uh Polytechnic and the Arts Department particularly that was quite extreme in the uh in the projects that they would um they would get people to do or allow people to do i mean some of uh because like mark Armand was doing performance art and you know some of his early performances to which dave ball did these little instrumental soundtracks that's how they started working together um yeah would see him kind of strip naked and smear cat food all over his body and then start kind of dry humping a mirror and stuff like that so so quite <laughs> quite extreme forms of expression and obviously like frank toby came from that background as well and he was famously a quite a, an extreme and and very brilliant performer when he was in fat gadget as well yes well hopefully he got two one for that and well <laughs> should have. he got a desmond <laughs> <laughs> so look but then he hits so so he he starts some bizarre and then is this where soft cell bring out tainted love is is this the the moment when he hits sort of gold at the beginning yeah, so he had he had um like uh Depeche Mode went with Daniel Miller and signed to mute. Um Steve O was managing B movie, uh Matt Johnson from The Other and Soft Cell. Um he couldn't get arrested with The Other, so he put out a single uh independently on Sun Bazaar called Cold Spell Ahead. Um, but he signed B 
B-movie and soft cell to phonogram. And uh, first of all, Soft Cell put out a 12-inch single called Memorabilia, which would, did well in the clubs, but wasn't really didn't really do anything chart-wise. Um, and at the same time, B-Movie were having kind of lower region chart success with a couple of their early singles. And then, yeah, like uh, Soft Cell were brought in to do a, a follow-up single. Um, they had two Northern Soul songs that they were considering doing. Uh, one was The Night by Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, and the other one was Tainted Love by uh um can't remember the name now gloria gloria uh, jones gloria jones i said mark, mark boland's girlfriend gloria That's jones right, yes um yeah so tainted love by gloria jones and luckily for them they went with tainted love and uh yeah it went on to sell over a million copies in the uk alone uh spent 43 weeks i think in the us billboard top 100 which was a record at the time and yeah just became this incredible sort of global it, properly global sort of hit record and um with that in his back pocket steve-o was kind of given a golden ticket really yes i know good it was kind of amazing because there was also whoever produced it which i now can't quite remember but it was <laughs> mike thorne mike thorne yes because i did an interview with mike um a couple of years ago uh, okay. it was quite interesting because he he sort of is the one of the producers of the early eighties, really, isn't he? He, he sort of yeah, he's amazing. Kind of, yeah, yeah. He has that moment, and I think his very early moment in the studio was working with uh, Deep Purple with one of their kind of tracks called, I think, it was either Burn or Fireball. And he explained oh, okay. how he got he got the noise of that beginning of the song, which mm. was kind of quite interesting in a nerdy way. But then, so so with a lot of you know the scene at that stage, I mean. It was kind of interesting because I was a bit of an indie, a bit of an, I was obsessed about the 80s, really. So mm. sort of 83 was kind of the period when I suddenly get really excited because it's the beginning of the Smiths. And then yeah. there's that whole jingly jangly. But Sun Bazaar is another kind of another different scene, really, isn't it? This is much more your avant-garde performance artist, kind of awkward people. Not awkward, but, you know. No, um, I, I would say awkward's a pretty good word. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, like funny enough, in, in the in the book, like, um so much goes on in 1983 i had I have to split it over two chapters um because yeah as you say it just explodes not not just within the world of some bizarre and what they were doing but across the board i think i think 83 is probably one of the best years for like pop music full stop i think you know um but yes, particularly with with some bizarre, you know, Soft Cell had their huge success with Tainted Love, and then they could kind of pretty much do whatever they want after that. It's you know they they put out some uh, some very unchart friendly music um, and still have you know top ten hit singles. Uh, at the same time, Steve-O has managed to get Virgin to uh, part with Cash for Einstein's End of Neubauten um, and also Cabaret Voltaire. Uh, he signed Psychic TV, um, which is Genesis P. Orridge and Peter Christofferson from Throbbing Gristle. He gets them signed first to Warners and then signs them to CBS when Warners decide they can't handle them. So, yeah, you have all these major labels um, spending serious money on these bands that previously you'd be lucky if you'd be able to find their single with the back of the racks in uh, Rough Trade. It's, um, it's you know, it's quite... Uh, quite quite the situationist art prank he pulled i think yes and there's also people like fetus as well isn't they uh j j thurwell as well so yeah, JG these, thurwell, these, yeah. are, these are the most kind of extreme sounds that we had in the 80s wasn't it really mm. let's face it i mean when you were doing the book what did it was it 
relatively straightforward getting hold of all the main characters that you needed to uh, give it, you know, to fulfill the narrative? I think, uh, I mean, when I started writing it, um, I did start writing it as a third person narrative, um, mainly because I didn't think that everyone would would want to talk, uh, as, as we'll probably talk about later on. There was the label kind of um, collapsed in kind of uh, rancor and litigation. So a lot of people still feel quite burnt by that period. And I thought a few of the big hitters wouldn't want to talk to me. So I thought I'd have to find a way around that. Um but yeah, I started writing it um, as a third person narrative. And then I eventually started getting the interviews agreed to and people started coming forward. And I thought their voices were so strong and so individual. Um, I thought the oral history format would work a lot better. Um, so, yeah, so I just kind of took myself out of the process and just turned it into an oral history. And yeah, I mean, like some people were a bit difficult to get hold of, like Blixer wouldn't talk to me, unfortunately. Um, because he really doesn't like Steve-O very much. Um, but Mark Chung, who was the bassist and manager of Neubauten, um, he was very generous with his time. Um, it was a bit tricky getting a few people. Uh, a couple of people were no longer with us. Um, but yeah, like I was, yeah, when, when, when I look in the front of the book at the list of names that I've got, you know, I, uh, I give myself a little bit of a pat, pat on the back because... Um, yeah, I was I was quite surprised to get to get some people, but I I think every, like enough time has elapsed that people can look back on that period, and you know I think people have developed their own revenue streams now. Maybe they're not so reliant on the money that that came from that time, yes. and so they can they can be a little bit more sanguine about it. I think. I think with most artists from that period, and and that's the only period I seem to mostly obsessed with. I think. Um, I think a few people sort of have, you know, eventually take a bit of responsibility for what they signed and realize that mm. they were they, yeah, yeah. they hadn't really checked the small print. And some were like, we didn't care, that's fine. And some were like, we were annoyed and it was frustrating, but I've learned to let go after three, four mm. decades. And obviously some people are still telling me, you know, about how many records they sold and and how well they did and they've never seen a penny mm. and obviously they're still feeling a bit burned by it so it's just it is always a very difficult one really on that that business because because I still find understanding how the music industry business side works is, mm. is still an odd one about who owns the music who owns the publishing who's got yeah. the master tapes you know and um Yes, and when you're 18 and probably taking too many drugs and drinking too much, it's probably hard to understand what you're signing. We've, we've all been there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I had to make a decision quite early on in the process as to to try and ignore um, the kind of contractual and uh, litigious side to it because I, you know, I, I managed to get hold of a few contracts from some of the smaller bands, and I just, you know, I just didn't understand what I was looking at, and I didn't really understand the ramifications. So I thought. I think it's a given that most of those contracts in the early 80s were pretty horrific. Um, and like you say, I think some people have now kind of taken ownership for that um, and have had to find ways to work around it. I mean, you know, for example, like last week was the 30th anniversary of uh, the, There's Dusk album. And, you know, the obvious thing to do for that kind of anniversary would be to have this kind of lovely coloured vinyl reissue with extra tracks and blah, blah, blah. But it's so bound up in contractual disputes. Uh, it, it just didn't happen. Like no, nobody can decide who owns owns it, who's going to pay for it. And so it just sits there kind of languishing um, until it maybe when it comes around to its 40th anniversary. So, you know, I think it's when you're in a situation like that, you have to sort of 
find other revenue streams and and just kind of get on with it, I guess. Yes, it is tricky. So as the 80s progressed, how did the label Mm. develop? Because obviously, you know, there's the sort of initial kind of fantastic success story, which is quite different to people like Alan McGee creation i mean he bought he had a lot of bands but nothing Mm. that really would have made him think god i'm going to retire at this stage you know and then you know he had my bloody valentine which was tricky and then there was (laughs) other bands like sugar which were better but then it was kind of Mm. oasis so he did take a good 10 years to navigate that bit how did um how did steve-o then sort of navigate the next period from from the tainted love success well, I, th- I think apart from Matt Johnson and Mark Armand, I think uh, this whole idea of um, creating a product and then shopping it to, to major labels, that, that kind of ended quite quickly when, you know, the labels realised that the, you know, three disc box set of Test Apartment 12 inches wasn't quite bringing back the amount of money that they paid for it. So, I mean, that side of things kind of ended. So some of us started putting things out independently. So you mentioned JG Thurwell and Fetus, like all of his stuff came out on some bazaar as an independent label and distributed by Pinnacle or Rough Trade or, or whoever. Um, they also formed a kind of a kind of like subsidiary of some bazaar called K422, which was run by a guy called Rob Collins, um, who is uh, he's now the MD of Cooking Vinyl. Um, right. And that's where they put all the really extreme stuff. So that's where Coil and Swans and Wise Blood and all that sort of noise, New York noise stuff that all came out on K422. So these records, you know, they they sold well uh, for independent records and did well in the independent charts. But all of a sudden, some bizarre, all that big money that they were getting from major labels wasn't coming in anymore. Um, but Steve either ignored that or didn't know because he carried on living life as large as he'd ever done. So there was this strange sort of dichotomy between uh he was running the labels if it was a major label but really the sales and the income revenue was uh was a, a small independent yes i think there was bits in the book from from what i can remember where they were you know because it's kind of a quite a gambling thing isn't it you just have to sort of put the money up and mm. just and 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 kind of almost bet on the future of what's going to happen rather than you know and it's a kind of an odd way to not an odd way but it's just the way the business is isn't it so mm. you know you're looking at the next release to sort of bring that money back in and clear your debts a bit i suppose yeah yeah so, and i think they, they they did rely on on the back catalog I mean, especially to start to move into the 90s you know they were constantly repressing uh the back catalog to try and create enough revenue so they could sign kind of newer artists and you know i think it was I think it was a combination of Steve-O not making very good A&R decisions and also him having kind of pushed people too far on, on, on the major labels. And so I think that sort of the, the confluence of the music not being so good and people being a bit fed up with his jokes and pranks and, you know, rebunctious behaviour. <laughs> um, I think that that was a combination where people thought, you know what, I've kind of had enough of this. And especially as it, the 90s went into the... Uh, sorry, as the 80s went into the 90s and it became a lot more corporate. Um, I think, yeah, like people like him were kind of sidelined a little bit, I think. Yes, because it's one, because the one thing I did notice from my sort of very simplistic kind of take in that period is that, you know, there was this kind of, you know, every five years there's a new wave of 16 to 18-year-olds coming <clears> along and they kind of want their scene. And the people who were into that scene are now in their mid-20s and are needing to do other things and commit to other kind of, 
things in adult life, I suppose, as we yeah, do. Yeah. You, you eventually have to leave home. And and then sort of like you had that sort of 83 to 87, you know, was this, for me, the indie world of the Smiths. And then they broke up and then there was this kind of change and then there's ecstasy comes along and there's a new kind of scene. There's a bit more of a dance kind of vibe. Then you get the 4AD mm. bands and then you get sort of Seattle grunge scene. And and a lot of people I interview, I've interviewed you know, it's just like, actually, no one really cares about us. We were kind of quite popular just a few years ago, but mm. actually things have changed. So I just wondered, how did Steve-O deal with that kind of shift in kind of trend in, in sort of music at that stage? I think, I mean, if you look at the releases uh, that came that came out on the label, I mean, I, I think he, he sort of kind of moved more into management. So he started managing a lot more people. I mean, like sort of like he worked with Bizarre Inc., um the grid obviously which was dave ball from soft cell um and dubstar you know, he managed dubstar in the 90s um you know not entirely successfully it has to be said uh but you know i mean he's he, he sort of that that shift you know the, the shift into kind of like dance music i guess i mean he was he was very vocal about it i mean he i, I dug out an interview that's in the book uh, you know, where he's saying, like, you know, dance music is the singles market. We need to find an act that will move it into the albums market. And so he was very aware of what was going on, very made some quite astute comments, but never found the music. I mean, I guess the act that that did that would have been Underworld, I guess, like Dubno Bass with my headman. You know, people accepted them as a band who made an album rather than a faceless act that just made 12-inch singles that you heard in a club. So I think Steve was kind of aware of that shift but either he wasn't being sent the music or he wasn't going out and finding the music I think he was kind of living quite large um and you know wasn't going to the places where he would hear up and coming electronic pop music yes the staying on the zeitgeist is kind of one of the most difficult things isn't it really mm. I think the only person who vaguely managed to do that was John Peel really he was obsessed with that kind of next thing but I noticed with a lot of artists and even managers, it's difficult. And photographers, it's really weird. They have that, they have that kind of purity. God, they're really into it. And then you you look at their work, which is fantastic. It's more than I've mm. ever done. But then you realize, I wonder why they didn't do the next decade of bands. And it's almost like they just they've just, they've either got a coke habit or they're just going to you know a bit, <laughs> a bit a kind of more exclusive clubs which are a bit more yeah. expensive and they're kind of lost that kind of the, <laughs> the next groundswell of young kids you know they yeah really, yeah so doing their thing so when you look at I, them, I always like, remember a really a really good quote from uh, like Wayne Hussey of the Mission and um, you know when the Mission were at their pomp and sort of playing Wembley Arena and places like that and he said he was waiting for a train and he saw these two young kids. Come, walk onto the platform and they had you know flared uh jeans and kickers and baggy t-shirts and the kind of stone roses hats and he said he looked at them and he said we're done <laughs> said, no, this is this is what the the next generation are going to be into it's not going to be us with our head scarves and arena shows it's it's this and you know and I, th I think if you're if you understand pop culture, you you know that you have a limited limited time, you know. Yes. Um, and, but I think it, I think interestingly, that's why so many of these bands there's this interest in bands like Rima Rima and the, the Sun Bazaar bands in, in 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 the book is because now those things don't matter anymore. You know, we kind of all exist on this kind of flat line of Spotify and and the internet. So those kind of peaks in fashion they've just all been ironed out, and everything exists on the same timeline now. I think. So yes. you know you can you can like 
the Stone Roses and the Mission at the same time and dance music and Rima Rima and Einstein de Neubauen and it all goes into this pot and all exists in the same the same place. Yeah, and also I think with the 80s, the narrative was slightly simplistic. You know, there was the kind of the mainstream 80s, that Trevor Horn production, Live mm. Aid, you know, Dylan Jones with his idea of what the 80s, the Blitz Kids, mm. New Romantic. And then you might go, oh, there's the indie scene with rough trade records and a bit of creation. And then you go further down and then you go further mm. down until you get to the really obscure little clubs and, and bands that didn't didn't last that long. And I think in a way... I don't know. It's not just looking back on rose tinted sunglasses. I think it's just a kind of an interesting because I've interesting kind of thing of discovering new bands that I missed the first time. Mm, I, yeah, I, you know, yeah. Because actually the other thing that people forget um, until you suddenly think about it is that you can always hear stuff that you wanted to, that you'd sort of read about because actually, mm. A, you couldn't just go and listen to it on the computer and because um, it didn't exist. And, you you know, mm. the record label might label record library might not have the copy and actually a record label um record shop might not have even owned a copy. Yeah, yeah. So, so that kind of that kind of period just disappears and then the next you know year comes mm. along so yeah anyway I'm and also getting... sorry <laughs> no, it's fine. i was going <laughs> off the point actually sorry about that yes get into here so i think people are loving discovering stuff from this period that that you know I your know. book is um is able to sort of promote in a way in a word that's what we say. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> that's fine. <about. laughs> what, what I was going to say, just to just to add to uh, to the, the point you just made, was uh, you know back then records were deleted as well. You know, think something would be deleted and it, it would be gone. It wouldn't be in in the racks. Um, and so it wasn't just the case that you couldn't sort of hear it or find it. It, it had kind of gone. It had kind of disappeared. Yes, this is true. So look, then what happens to the label? Are you able to give us an idea of how it sort of then goes through its next phase in, in its kind of uh, story? Um, yeah, sure. Um, can, can you bear with me a second? Somebody keeps phoning me and it keeps going through to my computer for some yes, reason. I'll, I'll Sorry, hit, hang I'll, on a second. I'll hit. Yeah. Oh yes, the narrative of the the label from the from the sort of the phase one, the eighties. How does it go through the nineties? Well, I think uh, like Mark Armand stayed with uh, Steve-O, had him as a manager, and, and Steve-O found him uh, an endless supply of uh, record deals. Um, like I think Mark Armand has been signed to pretty much every major label. Um, and every time he went there, Steve-O would get like a massive in, influx of cash. And, uh, and then Mark would make an album that, you know, was artistically very good and, you know, um, very fulfilling creatively. Um, but didn't really sell very much. So there was this sort of churn of uh, Mark Armand's career kind of bankrolling um, some bizarre, uh, some some might say. Yeah. Uh, and then there was a reliance on uh, the back, the back catalogue, um, which caused issues with those artists because they felt that they weren't receiving the uh, remun- uh, the, the, the the payment that that they deserve for this constant reissuing of their their material. And then Steve was, you know, trying to do new deals, like finding new acts and trying to assign these bands to to big labels. And, you know, he was he was doing the deals. He was, uh, you know, getting getting big money for bands like Coot and Tim Hutton. Um, But, you know, they they just didn't go anywhere. So it was this strange kind of combination of uh, legacy and trying to maintain the legacy while trying to bring ever more amounts of money in um, to basically to maintain 
the way he presented the label which was kind of trying to show everyone that it was still very successful and uh you know worth investing in so was an example of that because it's one of my favorite mark armand albums that i know mark hates so i always feel a bit embarrassed about it but i love tenement symphony which is right. the big orchestral one with trevor horn mm. and i think the songs are amazing i think the whole vibe that it's so lush it's a beautiful sonic kind of experience and mark Harmon hates it doesn't he <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think i mean initially that that album started uh he was working with um Dave Ball and Richard Norris on it initially. So uh, it's the first time he'd worked with Dave Ball since uh, Soft Cell had split. And, you know, they'd they'd worked together and, and the plan was to do this kind of sort of, you know, sort of lush pop album that had a foot in in the contemporary uh, sort of dance music, I think. So the, the grid were going to bring the beats, and but there was going to be these kind of Scott Walker-esque type sort of songs as well. And, uh, yeah, Steve-O signed him to Warners for that. And then all of a sudden, Warner's decided, you know what, we're going to bring in Trevor Horn. So Dave Ball and Richard Norris were out and Trevor Horn was in. And uh, I think Mark's dissatisfaction with that comes from the fact that he was basically a guest singer on his own album. So Trevor Horn just took over and, uh, you know, chose the covers and, you know, and Mark just came in and sang the song. So I think, I mean, it was a successful record and it's a, a fantastic sounding record, but I don't think Mark sees very much of himself in it, I think. Yes. But uh, but it was it, it was successful, which is you know I think at that time he and Steve-O needed that that kind of success. It happened, I guess, with the Swans, didn't it? With Burning World when they were on MCA and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it Bill Laswell done the production of that? And I think um, so. Yeah, yeah. I, unfortunately, yeah. I like <laughs> that album as well. Yeah, no. It's, I mean, I mean, again, it's you know, I, th- I think when when you've been in a band who are so who who were so intense and uh, loud and noisy as swans it's almost like doing an album like that that's them being experimental you know I mean it's when, when you when you come from that kind of left field background doing something that's quite poppy and uh, well produced is is an experiment because you've never done it before yes and then it happens oh yeah so that yeah so obviously he's an amazing hustler isn't he Steve-O yeah yeah I think that's probably uh yeah I've, he was described uh, variably to me as um like an Essex Barrow boy or uh, uh, that Steve Hovington from B Movie described him as um, one of those cockneys that people from the north wake up in the middle of the night sweating about. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's definitely got got the gift of the gab and um, yes. and he, he he loved doing deals. And, and you know, even right from the beginning when, you know, in, in the early contracts uh, for Soft Cell, he um, negotiated a year's supply of sweets in, in with everything else. And uh and I think when he signed Psychic TV to Warner's, part of that was that the MD of Warner's give him his uh, his leather chair from his office. So yeah, he's always sort of he's got these sort of pranks on the go. But yeah, but that 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 carried on. I mean, when he was working in the nineties, you know, and all that money was swimming around at the major record labels. Um, yeah, he strong arms huge amounts amounts of cash out of um, major like Warner Brothers. They, they paid a fortune for Coot. And and they never even released the record that they made. You know, I, th- I think he signed he signed Matt Johnson to CBS for like seventy grand in like nineteen eighty two, and then about ten years later he got uh, well t- 10, 10, 12 years later he got three hundred seventy five thousand pounds per album on a five album deal for this band Coot, um, who you know, it, and like I said, the album never even came out. So it's just 
huge amounts of cash that's swimming around in the mid 90s. Yes. So how does he cope with the O years at this stage when, you know, obviously we have uh, the record labels completely changed, don't they? You know, I remember that mm. documentary about Beats, didn't he? And Jimmy Iovine suddenly went, oh, my God, that, you know, the peer to peer sort of sharing. He suddenly realised that it was all over. The party was gone after yeah, his great yeah. success. So how did how did Steve-O cope with that next period in that you know new decade? Well, I, I think. Um, as as a label, as an entity, really, like some bizarre sort of like wound down sort of slowly. I mean, there was a soft sell reunion um, in the uh, in early 2000s, um, you know, which kind of he was involved in that and that kind of buoyed him a little bit. But, you know, after that happened, um, yeah, he wasn't really putting out any sort of new music that was successful. No, there was still quite a bit of stuff coming out, but increasingly it, it was just being pressed on cd and in runs of like a thousand one thousand five hundred copies um the offices got smaller and smaller until he was eventually running the company out of a bedroom of his flat in highgate um i mean he did when when myspace started he he sort of jumped on that quite quickly i know we kind of laugh about myspace now but i think people forget it was quite a revolutionary thing at the time you know yeah. and also like bands like I mean arctic monkeys were a myspace band you know and they're one of the biggest bands in the world and i think that idea of taking the control away from the major labels and putting it back in the hands of the artists that kind of appealed to him and so he kind of a and myspace and put out a double album of stuff that he found uh on myspace but again it was you know it came out independently was, the distribution wasn't great and it just kind of disappeared so I mean that that was that was kind of it really. It sort of you know he he couldn't seem to catch a break. Um, the the bands that he'd worked with before um, didn't want to work with him anymore, and there was a lot of litigation going on with who owned what. And yeah, I think he just stepped away from it, and uh, you know just uh, just as far as I can tell, started painting and doing lots of uh, trekking and hill walking. Right. So he's and and has he sold the you know like I know. Cherry Red Records often just <clears throat> get that chance and they write, you know, buy one of those labels up that, you know, mm. all the material because they just think this is, you know, the time is right. The person owns it and just says, yeah, that's my pension plan. So has Steve-O done the same thing with Sun Bazaar? Uh, no, because he he kind of, he's he has different uh, different involvements with different catalogues, uh, different artist catalogues. So um, you know, as far as I'm aware, he's involved. He has he has an interest in soft sales publishing, uh, which obviously is a is a revenue stream for him. But also means that any decisions that they make, he has to be party to. You know, all these all these years later, right? Um, so you know, he's involved with that. He still, um, according to him, owns the rights to all the albums that Swans, Neubauten, and Coyle made when they're on Sun Bazaar. If you talk to the artists, they would disagree with that quite strongly right. uh to the point where swans and neubauten have started repressing those records themselves and, and putting them out through their own labels obviously that drives steve mad because he sees them as bootlegs but as far as those bands are concerned they're, they're just taking back their intellectual property right um so yeah so there, there's he's, he's got you know lots of complex business relationships um that result from these strange deals that he put together in the 80s so he doesn't strike me as the kind of person who would sell up. Um, you know, there's been 
a few potential deals on the table to get the Sunbazaar back catalogue back out there. Um, and he's always stepped away from them at the last minute. I spoke to Daniel Miller from Mute and, you know, and I've said to him, you know, you'd be a great fit to get this stuff out. And he was just said to me, um, life's too short. So, <laughs> but, you know, but I, I must say like, you know, like Steve-O is, you know, he's, he's working on uh, a, a project to try and get this stuff back out there and, you know, get, get the music back out and, and, you know, for, for these artists who believe that he hasn't paid them, which he strongly denies, but, you know, he he wants to make amends and try and put things in place so that people are paid for the work that they've done. So, um, you know, whether that happens or not, it's it's hard to say, but, you know, it is it is his, his intention to get some bizarre back up and running again as a, a, a operating label and to get the music that is quite hard to get hold of some of it um, back out to the public domain. Yeah, that's kind of amazing, isn't it? I mean, those master tapes. Does he have the master tapes then sort of in a <clears throat> in a vault somewhere? <laughs> well, I, I spent a day with him uh last year and um part of that included driving up to uh one of those big storage centers in Archway up in London um to drop off some of his paintings. He does these huge like Jackson Pollock style action paintings. And uh, he he wanted to take some. He wanted me to help him take some of these paintings up to this lockup, um, which I did. And you know, we sort of went in there, and he opened it up, and it's just like floor to ceiling, you know, dats, VHSs, you know, two inch tapes, posters, props. It's just like it's like an Aladdin's cave. If you know, like for somebody like me who's obsessed with the record label, it was just yeah, it's like Santa's grotto or something. So um, you know, he's he's got all that stuff, but. You know those tapes deteriorate. Those two-inch tapes that oxidize and and you know they they start to to fall apart. So you know they have to be restored and they have to be looked after, or else they'll be gone forever. And I think what he needs is somebody to come and you know inject some cash into into it as a project and get these tapes you know baked and get them back to to a usable condition and then get this stuff remastered and get it out again before it's too late. God, that sounds, you know, both exciting and potentially heartbreaking. You know, you mm. know, it's music is not a person dying, but my God, that's, you know, it's kind of frustrating, isn't it? So when you... But it, is, it, is a, it is a history of, of sorts, though. It is, you know, I think it's 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 an archive of of a, of a time and, you know, reflects the culture of, of that time, I think. It's yes. like so many things, you know, we, we end up looking at sort of terrible clips on youtube and old degraded footage when you know if we have a chance to save these things i think i think we should oh god yeah absolutely i mean that's all we had that's because hmm. we didn't no one took a camera basically to a gig yeah so no yeah. one took a, a anything yeah. really that's that's kind of so does has has sort of putting this book together does does it feel like you've you've contributed to this, a, a, a story did you sort of feel when it was done and you've now got a copy that you you've sort of helping to keep this kind of label alive i mean i just wondered you know have, have, does it feel a lot different now that the book's done to, to compared to when you first started it and the importance of the label yeah i think um i mean it's it's been in the back of my mind to do this for quite a long time like mainly because i couldn't understand why nobody else had done it you know i mean i'm, I'm, a, I'm a journalist but my background isn't in music journalism particularly you know i've always written about music because i love music but I've always worked in more kind of lifestyle um, or sort of like sport sort of areas. So 
um I, I wouldn't have been the person that somebody would have picked to have to have done it you know they've gone to a famous music writer maybe but I think I, I had a you know this music had a big effect on me when when I was when I was a, a teenager you know it really was really important and I think it was you know when when you feel slightly awkward or alienated when you're younger you, this music's like a like a blanket really yeah and I think as as I was writing writing the book I was you know I started it in lockdown which was you know all these horrific things going on and I think in a way going back and going back to that time it had a similar effect as it had when I was a teenager it kind of I felt like it was kind of protecting me from all the horrific stuff that was going on in the world during during lockdown and, and that period so it was you know there was a big personal um interest uh best invested in it I think and so I I, I wanted to tell these people's stories because I, I felt they'd been forgotten for, for whatever reason whether it be because Steve-O pissed people off or because you know that the artist's don't want to work with them anymore you know there were lots of people involved in this project in, in the Sunbazaar label that people don't talk about anymore and I, and I kind of felt that I wanted at least to get those voices heard and then if people are interested in it then then great but I just I just it was kind of almost like I just wanted to say sort of thank you to them in some way and yes. you know remind people remind people of who these people were when they were younger and how much they contributed to the culture because I you know I, I really think they did. I think in so many different ways, like, you know, Mark Armand and JG Thurwell and <clears throat> Matt Johnson, all, all these people, you know, really gave a, gave a lot to the, the, the culture at the time. And, you know, they were kind of like a lifeline to a lot of people, I think. Yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant that you've done it. And like I said just before the start, you know, there's this film about a band <clears throat> You know, Rima Rima, who only lasted eight months, and 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 JG Thur Thurwell is on yeah, on well. that particular one. But it's kind of mm. interesting that you know that that it's only through people like yourself and this filmmaker and other people, you know, who put the time. You know, that that's mm. kind of, I suppose, it's kind of not rewriting history, but it's just giving it another another layer, really, which is kind mm. of really important. Of, of a sort of period that could easily just get forgotten if it wasn't yeah if it's not done now it's not going to get done is it and it will just be like a very small little bit on wikipedia but it's now yeah kind of, it's now going but to... i think i think also like the, the kind of gatekeepers to how we view uh our cultural history you know i mean it's it, you just have to look at how the 70s were presented for so long i mean it's everyone walking around in flares with orange wallpaper eating spangles or whatever you know i mean that's we we, you know, we lived through the 70s we know it wasn't like that but that was how it was presented in in popular culture um because the people who are telling the stories weren't the people who were there yes and i think it's it's uh, this is an opportunity for people who actually lived in that time experienced that time and these artists you know i mean none of them are getting any younger i mean a, a few people passed away while i was writing the book um who i wanted to talk to so you know, it, it's kind of like a now or never thing for for a lot of people. Yes, um, absolutely. And and yeah, and I think it's important that these little bits of cultural history are, are, are represented and the stories are, are put out there so that people can see that it wasn't just one thing. As you said, it wasn't just Live Aid and Dylan Jones. It was like Steve O'Pierce and it was like Daniel Miller and Alan Horn and all these people that were doing different things. You know, it wasn't just this homogenized culture that we've ended up with today. It yes. was very different. Well, we were quite lucky because we also had 
um, just briefly, we had John, the John Peel show that I know he mm. couldn't play everything, but it was a very good beacon. And then we had three weekly music papers in this country. Yeah, yeah. And every little city and town in the country had an alternative night of some description that some, yeah. some kind of keen person would be happy for a while to put on these kind of events and gigs. And they weren't going to get rich, but they believed in what they were doing and and sort of believed in sort of the the kind of the art and the music that went with it for that that mm. kind of quite short period of time. It was like a flame that burnt very brightly, but it does have a you know huge impact, and I think it's um, amazing. So just let there's the last question because um um I mean what did you from doing the book? Was there anything in particular that you discovered that um that you hadn't even sort of thought about at the beginning? Yeah, I I discovered um, that there was like a link between uh, the comics, the comic strip and the comedy store and some bizarre. So basically, you know, Rick Mayle and Aid Edmondson and Keith Allen, all all those people, um, the the comedy store was in Soho, uh, just around the corner from um, the some bizarre offices. And uh, and when they finished work at some bizarre, they would all go to the ship pub on Mordor Street. And then as they were going to work, the comedy store people would go into the ship as well. So on any given night, you could find somebody like Robbie Coltrane sitting down having a chat with Genesis P. Orridge or, uh, you know, Keith Allen and J.G. Thurwell, um, you know, having a discussion over over a pint in the corner of the ship. Um, and actually, J.G. Thurwell did end up uh, in an episode of the comic strip um, playing guitar in a, in, in a bar. So. Yeah, so for, so for a short period there was this sort of connection between Sun Bazaar and and the Comedy Store, and it resulted in a, a truly horrific record called uh, "I Want to Marry Harry When I Grow Up," which came out about I think it came out in eighty five or eighty six. Um, it came out under the name of uh, I think was it, was it the sort of Champagne Princesses or something, and uh, yes, yeah, it's basically. Keith Allen wrote the song and uh, got a bunch of little girls to sing it, saying how much they'd like to marry Prince Harry when they were old enough. And uh, came out some bizarre on the seven inch that uh, nobody bought quite rightly. And uh, yeah, it's probably it's probably one of the worst records ever made, I'd say. Excellent. Well, I love that story, actually. I used to love the comic strip. Which one do you remember which one it was? That, that yeah, it's the it's the bull it's the bullshitters. So um it's right, the one where yeah. they do a kind of take on Bodie and Doyle. And there's a scene where they're sitting in a bar and JG Thurwell's on stage playing guitar. And uh yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, but 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 those things, I mean, like like Jim Thurwell is this kind of zealot like character who is absolutely everywhere. I mean, he was so important with finding the music on some bazaar. And, you know, he was kind of friends with everyone and he worked on everyone's, you know, he was on top of the pops with Orange Juice when they when they played Rip It Up. He just pops up playing, miming to the saxophone solo and then disappears again. <laughs> He's just, he was just a fantastic, fantastic character and an incredible musical genius in his own right. Yes. Well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for this. And um, That's great. Yes. Real pleasure. And- Oh no, it's been brilliant. So I will. I sort of. I got halfway through it, and then I got slightly distracted. With um, I did have to sort of look at her, up his brother and um, sort of find you know yeah. his website, <laughs> and it was like, oh my god, that's some. So I did get you know it was brilliantly distracting, which I love actually about books like this because because you know you you, st- you have good intentions, don't you? And then you get mm. I have to his brother. What the hell's this stuff? You know, and then yeah, I mean, it's and, and yeah, I mean, he was he was incarcerated, like you know, for for, for most of the time that Sun Bazaar was going, he was in prison. Yes. Um, 
and uh but there but people were always trying to i think like gary bushel you know the the sort of journalist he wrote a few pieces trying to link soft sell to like the national front sort of saying oh you know soft sells steve o'pierce his brother is uh you know head of the the youth wing of the national front um i mean it didn't stick but i think like you know steve was always aware of the fact that that was that was something that people might try and use against him so like I said earlier, he, he never denied it, but he made people made sure people knew that it wasn't what what he was involved in. And uh, yeah, now now his brother was—I mean, he converted to Catholicism, I think—and he's quite high up in some church in America. Um, so yeah, it's uh, just genius. That is just genius, isn't it? Yeah, no, I yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, I mean, it literally is—you couldn't make it up. Like some of the stuff in in the book, you know, just. You just could not could not make it up, and and a lot of it just wouldn't happen nowadays anyway. I mean, yeah. Another thing is like all these bands, you know, living and working in London, New York, and Berlin. You know, these artists on the dole living in these major cities, being creative. Like you can't do that now. I mean, you can't afford to live in any of those cities, no, especially not true. you know if you if you're if you're a creative person. That is so true. Anyway, a massive thank you to Wesley Doyle for giving me the time for that interview. The book, as I mentioned at the beginning, and you probably get the gist anyway, um, Conform to Deform, The Weird and Wonderful World of Some Bizarre, The Life of Steve O'Pierce, and uh, lots of exciting and interesting information about all the bands that, uh, or most of the bands that were on the label. So do check it out, buy a copy, it will blow your mind anyway this has been the c86 show david Eastall. if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show all these have been archived i know aren't you lucky you can find those on spotify itunes podbean just do c86 show it's all going to be good anyway have a great week stay safe